Well, I actually originally started um, uh, really wanting my, my dream was to be a baseball coach. So I always, growing up, I, I played baseball. I played baseball at Carroll. Not a baseball player, a baseball, baseball coach. Baseball coach. Okay. I knew my limits. I knew my <laughs> limits. I mean, I was probably 13 when I when I realized that I was never going to be a pro baseball player. I was, I'm a very realistic guy. <laughs> On today's WisconsinConservatives.com podcast, I talk with State Representative Adam Nealon. He's one of the younger faces in the state legislature, winning a crowded primary for the 98th Assembly District in 2013 when he was only 27 years old. On deck today, how he got there, how Republicans can win in November, and we take a look at what it is that makes folks from Wisconsin just so gosh darn nice. Ladies and gentlemen, State Representative Adam Nealon. Uh, my name is State Representative Adam Nealon. I represent the 98th Assembly District in the uh, Wisconsin State Assembly. Um, that includes Pewaukee, City of Waukesha, and Sussex, and a little bit of Lisbon. Um, I'm also a small business owner, started a, uh, a window cleaning company when I was in college, and it's uh, kind of turned into a commercial cleaning company over the years. I have continued to uh, operate that while I've been in the state assembly. And I think uh, in terms of what my role is, I think one of the things that I've really honed in on is how technology impacts uh, our society and, and how our laws haven't necessarily caught up uh, to the innovations out there. So I've worked on things uh, like GPS, drones, cybersecurity, uh, things that I feel like I have kind of a niche that uh, not a lot of other people uh, tend to focus on and also something that I'm interested and passionate about. Uh, so that's kind of uh, been my role thus far in my short career, career in the Assembly. Yeah, and, and it started in 2013, right? Correct. The, the seat vacated by Paul Farrow. Correct. So what was what was going on at that time when you said, it's the right time, you know, there were going to be, there was a, it was a crowded field, right? There yeah, very crowded. Three or four challengers. Right. So I think that the main um, thing that I was looking at was the short cycle. So being a small business owner and kind of a younger guy, um, I didn't think I had the money to run in a full-blown campaign. Okay. So when I saw that there would be a six-week sprint, uh, you know, I thought that I could raise, you know, 30 grand or whatever it is and take that time off of work to be able to uh, run in that election. Um, it's definitely not something I had thought long and hard uh, about since I was younger. It's just something that kind of came up, and I thought that, you know, it was an opportunity that presented itself, and I wanted to take advantage of that opportunity. And I knew that uh, I was passionate and interested uh, about politics and public policy. It's uh, one of the things I studied in college. So I thought that uh, it provided a really great opportunity uh, for me to be able to uh, run uh, with the type of money that would be needed to win. Well, that's a very entrepreneurial way to approach it. It was an opportunity. I took it, sure. capitalized on it. Why do you think you won? Why did you stand out in a crowded field like that? I think there was a, a number of reasons. Um, there were a few very uh, good candidates in the race, um, but there was also uh, some people that I had some questions about just uh, from things I'd heard or from my brief experience with them. And, uh, you know, to be quite honest, 
nobody thought I would win. Uh, even my own wife, I don't think, <laughs> believed that I was going to win that race. I, was she supportive? She was very race? supportive, very supportive. Uh, but at the same time, on election day, I said, honey, I don't think I'm going to win. And she said, that's all right. You know, you gave it your best effort. <laughs> Neither do I. So I had, I had pretty much everybody telling me, you know, we – we understand why you want to run, but we don't necessarily think now is the time. You know, the, there was a lady in the race that was uh, considered the early front runner. She'd raised a ton of money. She'd been endorsed by Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Clayfish. Uh, she had worked for Governor Walker. She had worked for uh, Lieutenant Governor Clayfish as a chief of staff and her campaign manager. She'd been in the area for a number of years, you know, working in the state assembly all the way back in the 90s. Uh, so she was uh, well-known, and uh, people kind of thought that was the obvious choice, especially with five people in the race. She was the only woman. Uh, the thought was, you know, a lot of the men would split the vote, and the woman would uh, pick up the, the, the female vote. Now, Waukesha County voters are a little more sophisticated than that. They, <laughs> they don't vote for gender. They don't sure. vote for race, you know. So Issue, and, It's issues-based. They're, 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 they're involved, and the people who are going to vote in a primary like that are educated. And, and that's I, ultimately, I thought that I was the most conservative one in the race. I was the one that had some uh, laid-out policy proposals, and I also was willing to just go all out and work my tail off. I right. mean, that ultimately, I think it came down to just me being willing to put in the hours every single day, work very hard, get to know the voters. And I also had a very sophisticated voter identification uh, operation. I had been involved and around politics for a number of years, so I didn't try. It wasn't like starting something from scratch. I had a, a very good idea of what I needed to do to win, and I had very solid um, lists of identifying who would be the ones that turned out to vote. And I really focused my energy on getting to know uh, those people and having those people get to know me, where I think a lot of the other candidates, uh, they tried to go out and meet with every registered voter. You know, and there's just that's just simply impossible. I mean, you have 20,000 registered voters in the district, probably more than that. And it would just be impossible in, you know, six weeks or eight weeks or whatever that campaign was to get to know all of them and to spread your message to all of them. Uh, so I was able to really focus uh, my message. Uh, so, you know, a combination of all of that hard work, a sophisticated uh, voter identification. That, that nobody else was doing, probably. Probably not. Probably not. Probably not. I mean, the, the person that I actually thought w was, uh, uh, quite frankly, going to win was the uh, chief of police of Pewaukee, Ed Bauman. He's just a really great guy. He was retiring, and he was also, he's also in the high school football coaches hall of fame as a longtime assistant coach. A lot coach. of the community street cred going for Oh, man. And when the chief of police asks you to put a yard sign in your yard, you do it. <laughs> right. So, I mean, I'd go into neighborhoods, and it would just be every other house had Ed Bauman yard signs. And, right. you know, I, I even had one person, though, which gave me a little glimmer of hope. Uh, she told me that even though she'd put an Ed Bauman yard sign in her, in her lawn, she was going to still vote for me. Oh, man. So she succumbed to the, she, so she's, <laughs> the intimidation she, from the chief. You know, it's just when he asks, when the chief of police says, hey, put this yard sign up, who's it's saying no? Say no right? Who's saying Versus no? some kid who's right, never heard kid. of So, you know, and then I got a lot of uh, uh, the age questions. So I had to develop a standard because when I was first running, I was 27 years old. Yeah. Uh, and 
uh, a lot of people uh, asked me on the door. I think the, the major question I got was, are you old enough to do this? So I had to develop a, like a canned answer for it. And, I, and I, my answer was, well, Governor Scott Walker and uh, Governor Tommy Thompson were already in the assembly at my age. And uh, Paul Ryan actually ran and won Congress at my age. And I think once I established that, you know, it wasn't unprecedented for uh, a young kid to be running for uh, no, state assembly. Especially in the legislature. There's right. all kinds of folks who got in here. Absolutely. I mean, we have somebody that's 25 years old uh, in the legislature now, so I'm an old man compared to some of the guys. <laughs> in your 30s. You can have that, that uh, it was a six-week race for the primary, and then you're mm-hmm. in one of those districts where you win the primary, you're safe. And um, a lot of other parts of the state, most of the rest of the state, that's not always the case. Right. Um, and there's the blue districts like that, too. Once you got into the legislature, and, you know, this is coming up on your third election now, mm-hmm. is there any animosity or resentment, either in good good fun or maybe not, from other members of the Republicans in the Assembly where they have to fundraise all, all year round, all the time, always do the events, and you're in one of those spots where you win the primary, you're good for the general, and a lot of times there's not even a primary challenge. Well, no animosity from me, but certainly, <laughs> certainly there's animosity, and, and you know it's all mostly in good fun. Okay. But you know there is, uh, I think, a bit of resentment towards uh, the people that you know will never have a general election race. Right. So th- we, in their mind, don't face that same uh, level of scrutiny um, in our right. votes or in you know in just in a- everything that we do uh, because there's not. Now I-, I would argue there always is somebody when you're in politics, somebody's always trying to destroy you. You know, I mean, <laughs> wow, it's just. It's just the fact. I mean, just as many people read my website or my comments looking to destroy my career as they do looking to be informed about my career. And that's true of anybody that's in elected office, I think. But in terms of the animosity level, you know, I think there is uh, some of that. And you especially see it bubbling out um, when uh, people uh, put controversial, what they deem controversial bills out there, Uh, you know, things that they feel like might not be in the best interest of swing districts, even though, you know, districts that have 70 percent conservative support, uh, we can, quote unquote, get away uh, with doing that type of stuff. Now, I I honestly believe that that comes from uh, uh, their convictions. You know, I think that people uh, go to office to to try to do big things and and try to push uh, an agenda that they believe in. And I think that uh, uh, that's what they're doing when you see these, quote unquote, controversial bills come up. Uh, such as something like the the transgender bathroom bill or uh, school carry or uh, guns on uh, UW campus or uh, even prevailing wage um, reform. I got a lot of um, quote-unquote controversy amongst media and even in our caucus. And I think it's those issues that really bring out the kind of uh, deep-seated animosity uh, in terms of, I can't believe uh, we have to do this. Um, you're safe. We're not necessarily safe. Think about you know what some people call the quote-unquote majority makers. The majority right. makers are the ones on the swing, on the you know on the on the fringe. It could go either way, and, and they are the ones that are like could be upset by people pushing what they deem is uh, a radical agenda. Well, but in the same stroke, you could argue you're representing your district. Absolutely. In a primary like yours, I'm sure it was very much a race to the right. Absolutely. You want to get as many of those conservative endorsements. So that might speak more to how varied the, the state is. But and as a you know consultant, what we do at Openbox, 
I'm sympathetic to those races that have to balance it. I sure. mean, that's a huge deal. And you, uh, but the side of that coin is you get into office, you're going to have to deal with the politics of being a legislature and the politics back home. So it's right. It's not just a, a ego driven thing. It's look, I'm representing my district by bringing this to the the table and 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 defending it. That's exactly right. And and that's what I mean when you know people are are there to to make changes. They they're doing things because they want to see uh, that change in a law. You know, it, it's. You know, all too often people are cynical in terms of, oh, well, this is just simply politics or, oh, they're just trying to get their name in the news. When really, I mean, truly, those people feel strongly about those issues. Those people really care and think it's in our best interest to make those changes in the law. And I think, you know, that is just a natural conflict um, when you have people from such diverse uh, backgrounds as throughout all over Wisconsin. And I think that uh, one one thing that was really uh, surprising to me when I first got elected was the battles that we were fighting uh, weren't necessarily with Democrats, but they were with uh, in, inside our own caucus in mm-hmm. terms of people on the right, people in the middle, uh, people that didn't want to touch certain issues, but they would go some way if they had to. And I think that was the most surprising thing that, you know, just because you're a Republican, just because you say you're conservative doesn't mean you're all on the same page on every issue. Well, it's good to have that diversity of opinion at the end of the day. Sure. I mean, nobody wants to live in a world where everybody thinks alike. Well, on, on this side of the aisle, we're creeping toward that more and more on the left, it seems like. We're going to round people up and throw them away. Um, you've been involved I mean, after school as a legislative aide at mm-hmm. the state level and in Sensenbrenner's office. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me a little bit about that and why you got involved there. Sure. Well, I actually originally started um, uh, really wanting my, my – dream was to be a baseball coach. So I always, growing up, I, I played baseball. I played baseball at Carroll. Not a baseball player, a baseball, baseball coach. coach. Okay. I knew my limits. I knew my <laughs> limits. I mean, I was probably 13 when I when I realized that I was never going to be a pro baseball player. I was, I'm a very realistic guy. <laughs> I guess. But, I, you know, I, I was able to play in college. I had a good time doing it. And I thought that, uh, you know, one of the strong, one of my biggest strengths was kind of my mental aptitude for the game. You know, I understood the intricacies and, and the minutia uh, of the game. And, and that was always, you know, being a couple steps ahead always made me an adequate baseball player enough to compete at high levels. And I thought that would translate well into being a coach and give me a chance to be around the game, uh, you know, after I graduated and after I wasn't able to play anymore. Um, but I realized in college that. To be a baseball coach, really, uh, unless you're a professional baseball coach, you needed to be a teacher. It was like the only way that you were able to kind of have that flexibility in season to coach. And uh, after a couple of years as uh, an assistant and also studying um, at Carroll to be a teacher, I realized very quickly uh, that I did not want to be a teacher. Uh, (laughs) So I kind of reassessed uh, where I was at, and I and I looked at kind of my transcripts, and I saw that I had taken a lot of political courses just because I was interested in politics. You know, I was a kid uh, in college dorm room watching Fox News. You know, I I was reading you know uh, real clear politics and in different political sites just for fun. And I thought that you know if I wanted to do something that had I had that same passion for, uh, it would be uh, something in politics. So I actually switched. Uh, my major junior year into political science, uh, which is what I graduated in. And I started to get involved um, in the Waukesha County Republican Party. And I actually met Congressman Sensenbrenner at a uh, Christmas party and um, got a job 
pretty much on the spot. He <laughs> offered to. It's uh, not easy to do. On no, the spot like and, that. and you know, in retrospect, it's sh- kind of shocking. But at the time, <laughs> I just thought that this is the way things are. You know. Sure. I, but so I actually started working. Politics is easy. You just show up and <laughs> you just show you up. Job. You just be the youngest guy in the room and people put you to smile work. Smile at the right people. Yeah. Just smile and nod. You know, and it, it was a, a bit stunning to me even at the time just because, uh, you know, there was no like uh, um, litmus test for mm. where I was in terms of my philosophy and my, my actual politics, um, which, you know, I think – that should be the case in a lot of times because you're never going to agree with somebody 100%. And if you're looking for somebody to work for that you're going to agree with all the time, uh, you'll probably be unemployed. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there, the next day, actually, or maybe a few days after uh, I, I spoke with Sensenbrenner, um, I went to his office and went through the interview process. And uh, I started working full-time for the congressman before I'd actually graduated college. I had a full-time uh, full-time salary job. Uh, I didn't get benefits until after I graduated, um, but I was a kid in uh, my senior year in college showing up, uh, you know, in a suit and a briefcase uh, because I was actually leaving work to go finish courses at Carroll uh, during like my lunch break and then go back to work. Uh, and then I was taking uh, online and night classes uh, to, to, to make it work. Um, but once I, then once I graduated, um, there was an opportunity out in Washington, D.C. to work for his uh, staff out there. So I took advantage of that, and I went out to Washington, D.C. and worked for him for over a year out there. Uh, and that's actually when I realized uh, how much I wanted to live in Wisconsin. Uh, it wasn't until actually I moved away that I'm like, I just, I miss Wisconsin so much. I was like flying back like every other month. Well, I had that, I had that same experience because I, my first job out of the gate from school was at the Weekly Standard magazine oh, okay. in D.C. And that was, I had interned there the summer before and I had a full-time marketing job there. And I, I tell, told everyone I loved the job. I just hated living in Washington. Yeah. And I like, if someone was having a birthday, I'm like, you know what? I'll fly home. I'll be there <laughs> exactly. Saturday. Oh, that's you know? what and I did. That's I, what I kinda did. You kind of get sick of paying for $10 Miller Lights at Morton's. Right. And you think, you know, I'm just a Wisconsin boy. So I know I relate to that 100%. Yeah. And it's, you know, D.C. has its, you know, positives. I mean, one, I love learning about random things. And I love the Smithsonian museums. I mean, to have all of the Smithsonian's without an entrance fee. I mean, I know I pay for them in my taxes, <laughs> right. but you know, as a you know, twenty-two-year-old, twenty-three-year-old kid, it doesn't you know fully sink in that you know, oh, I'm, these are free. You right. Know? Well, it's like you wake up on a Saturday and you're you know, first couple months there, you go, what am I going to do today? It's like, right. what the mean? What are you going to do today? There's oh, all, yeah. You can do anything you want. The the difficult thing was having no one to do them with. Oh, you know, right. it's so yeah. hard just like <laughs> as uh, you know, an adult out of college working to to make true real friends. You know, I mean, and who it was easy to find people to have drinks with. Like everybody liked to, you know, go out, you know, I played in a softball league, flag football league, those sure. kind of things. But it was like, who am I going to call uh, to go to the Air and Space Museum with on a Saturday afternoon? I don't know. I'll sure. go myself. You know, and, and it was that that you know was kind of what kind of made me miss Wisconsin. It was like the friends, the family, just that friendly Midwestern culture. It was just you know, <laughs> it, when you said hi to somebody on the street in D.C., people look at you funny. Man, like, my analogy to that was I had come back home or I was visiting for a weekend, and the, the I was got something from the grocery store. And the clerk said, have a nice day. And I stopped cold in my tracks like, 
do I know you? <laughs> like, what? what What? do you mean, have a nice day? What did I do? And it's just, it's, it's until you're away from it. Right. It's a truly a unique thing about here. And I mean, maybe the Midwest, but Wisconsin in particular. Yeah, I'm sure my neighbors thought I was crazy because I was saying hi to people. <laughs> you know, and they're like, who is this guy? <laughs> what do what, you want from what does me? he want from me? <laughs> right. Is he going to ask me for money or try to sell me something? And, you know, it's just, a, it's, it's different. And it kind of puts you off in terms of, you know, meeting new people. Because it's like everybody is kind of, it seems like kind of li- in their own world. And you kind of just naturally just kind of drift into your own world. Right. And then it just feels like such an isolated place. One of my, one of the editors at the magazine said, you know, in Washington, it was the first couple of weeks I was there and I was telling him about how different it was. He goes, um, yeah, in Washington, it's not how are you, it's who do you work for. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, it's like, what, you know, what that's, story do you want to tell? That's very true. I mean, that you go to like those, you know, networking things. And, and one thing, another thing nice about working on the Hill was uh, there'd always be receptions, you know, and in, in Wisconsin, you have to pay for everything reception you go to like if you go if you know the builders are having a reception after work you know it's twenty dollars to get in sure but in dc they didn't have those same i mean you could staffers could eat for free every night of the week at receptions they knew the right place they to go. knew the right place yeah. to go but then every time you meet some it was who do you work for? What's your job? You know, and it was, it, there was like worth spending my time getting to know you. Absolutely. Is what it, it was. It, yeah, it, absolutely. And if, and people were not shy about saying, no, no. Oh, you're a staff assistant. Sorry. I don't got, <laughs> I don't got time for this. So aside from the ego, um, how, how did, how did being on that side of things for the, in Congress and then later in, in Wisconsin, when you got back home, how did your, your perspective on the political process change from being an aide to then being being the face, to being the elected official. Well, I think uh, I did have some good examples. I still think a lot about what Congressman Sensenbrenner, uh, how he approaches his job. Uh, so I think in, in some ways um, it was just learning from people who had done it before and having kind of mentors that had showed you how to be successful and then carrying it over. Um, I think that, you know, it's – a much more difficult transition than I think uh, people realize because when you are working behind the scenes and you are working for somebody, the buck doesn't fall on you. The weight isn't on your shoulders. And then when you then get elected and you are the person that gets the vote, there's this pressing weight on your shoulders in terms of, am I making the right decision? Mm. Is this, I mean, I can't tell you how many people during session meet with me during the course of the day that ask for money from the budget. You know, I mean, it's, I would say 90% of the meetings I have uh, regard some level of funding. With, with other legislators or anybody? Oh, no, just with just anyone. advocates. Okay, money. I want Mon- money. Okay. You know, people have their day on the hill, you know, right, right. where they'll, you know, big groups, you know, the dentist or the chiropractors or the nurses or whatever it is, they'll have their day on the hill and they'll talk to you about, you know, their needs and their wants and changes they'd like to see the law. And then you have lobbyists, you have, you know, the government relations people, um, all sorts of just different meetings you'll have during the course of the day, which, you know, I'd say one out of five is just a simple policy change uh, that they're advocating for. Four out of five, it's funding. And I mean, it's rare when you hear somebody's pitch and think, 
oh, that person's crazy. They don't deserve that. You know, well, it's, it's you, you tend to agree with people. Of course, you know, we want to do everything we can uh, to prevent Alzheimer's. You know, of course, we want to do everything we can uh, to have healthy kids in school and getting proper nutrition. Uh, does that mean we have the budget to give them two meals a day? Uh, probably not, uh. you know, but I mean, just from the empathetic perspective that you know, you just uh, being a person in the world, you, you have some sort of compassion uh, for your fellow humans. So when people are saying that we need this, uh, it's not that you disagree, it's that you have to weigh the, the cost benefit and know that you have limited resources. So I think that, uh, you know, there are, I would say most people end with me saying, no, I'm sorry, we, you know, I can't push for that. Or, you know, I don't, maybe uh, sometime down the line if you know we get additional revenues or you know and you have to be kind of it feels a bit cold and and I think when you're a staff person you have that buffer that it's well it's not me it's not I'm not the one saying that you can't have that funding or we can't make that switch or because if someone walks in and talks to a staffer and they say no and shut them down it's not oh Billy said no it's and a representative Nealon said I can't have it you got it so and there is that I mean we can't, we don't have unlimited resources, so we can't just provide everything to everyone. Right. You know, the government's <laughs> not the nanny state, no. you know, but it's still difficult to tell people no constantly. So you have to weigh all these factors, and then ultimately the buck stops in you because you're the one uh, that has to make that vote. You're the one that has to say yes or no uh, to a bill that funds robotics. You know, you're the one that has to say yes or no uh, to a legislative package to help prevent dementia, you know, and, and you need to really uh, weigh the cost benefit of that. I think that uh, there are bills all the time that I think, you know, this sounds great. And then ultimately, when I dig into it, I'm a no vote, you know, and so you have to do your due diligence and you have to be responsible uh, for the fallout or the pushback or the success that comes with those votes. And I think that uh, is not fully realized uh, when you're not the one kind of on the front lines making those decisions. Why do you think voters have been rewarding conservative reforms in Wisconsin over the last few years? I mean, you look at what the legislature's accomplished, you look at the agenda Governor Walker brought in, in what during presidential years is a blue state. Why has that been not just happened, but successfully so? Well, I think that... I'll- mostly because the reforms have worked. You know, I think that Democrats have said the sky is falling time and time again, and, and it hasn't. You know, when, when Act 10 passed, uh, they said it was going to be the end of, you know, Wisconsin as we knew it, that we were going to fall back and be at the bottom state in the country. And I think that it worked. I mean, we've seen Wisconsin balance their budget. We've seen Wisconsin their economy grow. Uh, We've seen education uh, improve. And I think that every time that Democrats hype, hype, hype up how negative things are going to be, it ends up biting them in the backside because it turns out that even if there was just moderate success, it was success. And it wasn't the negative narrative that they were trying to pitch. I mean, Democrats talk about redistricting, but they don't have an answer for how successful we've been statewide time and time again. And it's not just the southeast corner, but Fox Valley. Fox Valley has 
incredibly conservative. I mean, and then you have uh, Art Walker's true success in terms of how he's been able to win three statewide elections is how well he's done in the western part of the state and the northern part of the state. And there's some really robust grassroots movements there. I oh, mean, absolutely. Lacrosse Republican Party, I know, has some real leaders. Lacrosse, I mean, there. Eau Claire is a bastion yeah. of Republican voters. I mean, and then when you had North uh, into, you know, Sheila Harzorf's uh, Senate district, that all three of those uh, legislators are Republicans. Uh, and then it pushes all the way out to, to Wausau. You know, we have a stronghold in Wausau, and then you go up north into the Rhinelander area. And those are, you know, swing areas that are currently all Republican. What has to happen between now and November? What does the message have to be? Um, who has to take charge? Who has to, who has to do what to be sure that we win? Well, for Ron Johnson to win, he needs to take charge and he needs to win. You know, I don't think there's going to be anything um, at the bottom of the ticket that's going to necessarily uh, help help him more than he can help himself. But I think that ultimately uh, Senator Johnson needs to define what makes him uh, the best choice. And I think he has really done a good job lately kind of I identifying um, his strengths as being a manufacturer, being a private sector guy. I mean, Wisconsin is a manufacturing state. I mean, it's the backbone of our economy, and he's the only senator with manufacturing experience in, in all the U.S. Senate. He's the only one that's a manufacturer. I think that he needs to get that message out there. Final wrap-up questions, ask these to everybody, and they're all Wisconsin-based, all right. purely, purely subjective. So your past, past or present, or maybe future, uh, favorite Wisconsin politician? Favorite Wisconsin politician. I would say that, you know, I, I hate to take such an obvious one, but I really have a lot of respect uh, for uh, Governor Scott Walker. You know, I think that he has been a tremendous leader, and at times uh, people have been concerned when he's been out of the state running for president. Um, but I think that. He has always been connected uh, here, and he's done a great job of thinking outside the box. I think just Act 10 alone uh, makes me makes him jump to the top of the list for me. Uh, it's really the best way to govern. When we were looking at a budget crisis and $3 billion deficit, the pundits and the experts said we had two options. We could either raise taxes to pay for it, or we could either cut spending and limit services. Governor Walker looked at that situation, thought outside the box, and thought of a completely different alternative, something that we weren't even aware existed in ter if you only listened to what the media and the pundits and the narrative was out there. It wasn't raising taxes. It wasn't cutting services. It was looking at different uh, reforms that we could do to ask state employees who were getting a sweet deal still to contribute a little more to their health insurance, contribute a little bit to their pension, and to reform collective bargaining. That alone was able to balance our budget and I think was a huge step in the right direction for Wisconsin, something we're still benefiting from today uh, to the tune of billions. And I think for that, uh, I got to give them credit. Favorite Wisconsin vacation spot? Um, I would say my favorite vacation spot in Wisconsin is uh, my wife's family's uh, lake house up in Door County. Beautiful, peaceful place that 
anytime I get a chance um, to get away from the world, that's where I like to find myself. Favorite Wisconsin brewed beer? I would say, man, I, I have a lot. I, my favorite brewery is probably Al Asylum. I love everything that Al Asylum does. Um, but I think if I had to pick one favorite beer from Wisconsin, it would be Lakefront Brewery's River West Stein. Favorite Wisconsin sports team? That one's easy. Packers. Easy. All right, easy. then you, you can have one or the other for the rest of your okay. life. Beer or cheese curds? Beer. Well, that was easy. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I don't want to live in that world, <laughs> but if I had to choose one, it would be beer. 